Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's great to have you at Crosswinds Church. It's good to be able to worship this morning. When you put your finger in the text of the Bible, you find there's a lot of verses in the Bible that warn against the dangers of materialism. I mean, doesn't the Scripture say it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Do you ever find yourself wondering, what are we supposed to do with those things that we like? What are we supposed to do with the pleasures that we enjoy? Are we supposed to sell it all, get rid of all of it? Isn't that what the really spiritual people do? Aren't they known for going without? Some of you know about there's a, a group of young and very radical Christians that they say that you should always live in what is a wartime mindset for the gospel of Jesus. Live on less so you can give more to missions. Live on less so you can avoid the lure of materialism and worldliness. And so when that young couple, well, they may be content to sleep on sleeping bags and not even own a bent even own a bed in their apartment. What happens when they have kids? And all of a sudden, living on less doesn't work like it used to. And their kids start to grow up. Should they deny their children of things like family vacations? They may be excited about buying their jeans at Goodwill, but do their children have to deny, buy all their jeans at Goodwill as well? They may be content with an old clunker, but do their children have to always drive a beaten-down car? As Christians, what are we supposed to do with the pleasures in this world? Enjoy them or deny them? What's the more spiritual thing to do? Uh, not necessarily just big pleasures, but ordinary pleasures, like bacon, Dr. Pepper, Marital love, going to a movie, are all those things worldly that we should deny? A lot of Christians think that the idea of being spiritual is I'm going to deny myself of enjoying all these things. And it, at first they feel good about it on the inside because they think they're so spiritual. But then deep inside, if they're really honest, Aren't they angry and bitter towards God? Because they don't get to experience any of the joys or pleasures in this world? As Christians, what should be our attitude towards the pleasures that God has given us in this world that we could possibly enjoy? Abstain from them or enjoy them? This is the question we're going to look at this morning. We're working our way as a church through the book of 1 Timothy, and today we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're just taking a very short section, just the first five verses. And in these five verses, Paul is going to tell the church of Ephesus and us today how to avoid a very subtle, demonic doctrine that creeped into their church and that may be alive and well in our church 
as well this morning. So let's go ahead and, and dive in in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And the first thing we're going to see is this. Some will depart from the faith by following the teaching of demons. It says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Now, this is going to start on a very basic level, sort of like Vince Lombardi. This is a football kind of level of stuff. But follow along, and this is going to get really applicable as we go further in the sermon. What this is saying is there's only two teams on the field in this world. There is God and His team. Everybody else is actually playing for Satan with the demons and their team. There is no middle ground. There is no just neutral stance. You're either for God or you're against Him, and you're working for the demons. Now, a lot of times when ancient Israel would look at the surrounding cultures, they would find themselves trying to mingle the religion of the surrounding cultures with worship of the one true God of the universe. That didn't go well because they weren't mingling something neutral they were mingling something demonic into God's worship. In fact, look what the Scriptures say. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. The Canaanite culture and the other cultures around ancient Israel, they weren't worshiping nothing. They were worshiping demons that were behind the idols, that were behind the deities of Baal. Now, the same is true today. Muhammad is not a nothing. There is a powerful demon or demons behind Muhammad in Allah, in the worship of Islam. That is what the scriptures say. There is powerful demons behind Buddha and Buddhism. Remember, there's, you're either worshiping the one true God of the universe or you're worshiping Satan and his demons. There is no middle ground out there. The same thing is said in the Psalms, by the way. And it says in a number of places in Scripture. I'm just giving you some examples. Psalm 106, 36 through 37. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. And were these idols just neutral, empty things? No. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. So what's going on is the phone. All right. What's going on here is we have um, people who think they're worshiping something neutral, and the reality is they're worshiping something demonic, and as they get further and further into it, they're sacrificing the very thing that is most precious to them, their own children. By the way, this is not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing as well. It says this. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to gods. I do not want you to participate with demons. So here is the reality. The reality is that we are involved in a, a spiritual battle. Everything in this world is either for God or against God. All the other false religions out there are demonically inspired. There is a dark spiritual power behind them. 
There is no such thing as neutral zone. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the Vince Lombardi moment is there's only two options out there, the one true God of the universe or demons. And the demons are very committed to deceiving you and taking you down and destroying your faith. There is no neutral ground. Now let's put our finger back into verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says this, that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Latter times scripturally means any time after the return of Christ to heaven until he returns for us in the future. And he says, some will depart from the faith. This doesn't mean wander or drift. It literally in the Greek means coming right up to the edge of saving faith, but at the last moment they will intentionally turn away. And where will they turn away? To follow the teaching of demons instead of the teaching of Christ. Because if you are not following the teaching of Christ, you are following the teaching of demons. And what happens is you have people here that look very religious. They seem like they're in the church and they're following Jesus or they're really close to following Jesus. And then they turn away from following Jesus. And they take lots of people with them, don't they? Because they were so close to being a regular part of the church family and having trusted in Christ. And Paul has some scathing words for these people. He says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What does he say? These people are liars? They're insincere. What that literally means is they pretend to have a relationship with God, but they don't really have a relationship with God. They're faking it. They're liars, he says, and their consciences are literally seared. The word seared there means quarterized. And you know what that is? When, when somebody has a nasty wound on the battlefield to, to keep it from bleeding out and to keep infection from getting in, they put the skin together and they take a hot iron and they sear the flesh together so the bleeding stops and the infection can't get in. But here is the downside of cauterization. Once your flesh has been burned like that, you've killed the nerve endings forever. You'll never be able to feel anything on the wound that has been cauterized shut. Paul says, these people, they can't even feel right and wrong anymore. They're liars, they're deceivers, they're following the teaching of demons, they're in the church, they've gotten right up to the edge of saving faith, they turn away and they bring people with them. I mean, he has like no loving words for these people at all. Great danger, great warning. Now, here's the question. How do we recognize these people? Because they're not just alive and well in the ancient city of Ephesus, but they're alive and well in our church today. What do they look like? And here's where things get intensely practical. You can recognize demonic teaching in the church because it will have an emphasis on abstinence from God-given pleasures. 
you recognize demonic teaching in the church because it will have an abstinence on God, abstinence from, excuse me, God-given pleasures. Verse 3, these people will forbid marriage and they require the abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You recognize demonic teaching of these false liars in the church because they will be people that will forbid marriage and forbid sexual intimacy inside of marriage. Let me give you a little bit of background on what was going on in Ephesus, and then we'll bring this up to modern day. You have two strains of thought feeding into the culture at Ephesus. First, you have a Jewish strain of thought, and that was coming from the Essenes. If you've ever studied the Essene Jews, they were the guys that sort of go out in the woods and eat fruits and nuts and berries and get away from culture because culture is bad and evil. And they said, by the way, that sexuality and marriage and intimacy is also bad and evil, so nobody gets married, nobody has sexuality, and thankfully they died out for obvious reasons. But that's what they believed, that the super spiritual people were the people who were sexually chaste, who never became married. Mixed with that, which was going on in the Jewish culture in Ephesus, the Greek culture, which was alive and well, which had Plato. Plato taught there was a separation between the material world and the spiritual world. The material world was evil and bad, but the spiritual world was what was good. And so you wanted to cultivate your spirituality and deny your physicality. And so you wanted to do all kinds of spiritual things, but then stay away from physical things like sex, in marriage, in intimacy, because those are worldly and fleshly and evil. Now, this was alive and well in the city of Ephesus, but it was all these beliefs that the idea of um, abstaining from earthly pleasures made you more spiritual was alive and well in Ephesus, and it continued into even the early church itself, in particular in this area of abstaining from marriage and abstaining from sexuality. Even the early church fathers bought into this. For instance, Tertullian and Ambrose, they wrote, as early church fathers, right, in a couple, like 200s and 300s, they wrote that it would be preferable to have the extinction of the human race than to have marital intimacy and sexual intercourse. Totally against it. Augustine, he was a little bit better. Augustine said marital sex is not wrong as long as you don't enjoy it. <laughs> you know, not much better at all. In fact, if you look at the early church fathers, most of them said that you were more spiritual if you uh, pursued perpetual virginity than marriage. Now, this comes out of this teaching that was going around in the city of Ephesus and continued into the early church fathers, saying the idea that if you abstained from the God-given good earthly pleasures of marriage and sexual intimacy in marriage, therefore you were more of a spiritual person. And by the way, that continued all the way into the Middle Ages with the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if you know about this, the Roman Catholic Church began blacking out days 
on the calendar saying that Roman Catholic couples were not allowed to be intimate on these certain days because they thought intimacy was, was evil and not necessarily as spiritual. In fact, they continued till half of the calendar was completely blacked out. Now, this continues as you get to the Catholic priesthood. The Catholic priests are required to be celibate and not allowed to get married. Why? Because the more spiritual people don't give themselves into the earthly pleasures of marriage and sexuality. But is it true? Is that what the Bible teaches at all? Absolutely not. In fact, just a few weeks ago when we were in looking at the qualifications for overseers in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you saw that he had to be a one-woman man, and you were to examine how the overseer managed his children and how he loved his wife. So obviously, the overseer was meant to be, or most normally would be, married. See, here's what you have going on. The demons, they want to trick you and make you think that the um, person who denies themselves of God's good earthly pleasures, such as marriage and sexual intimacy, is a more spiritual person. The reality is, is that a, is a lie from the devil itself. God's plan is for normally a man and a woman to get married to enjoy their relationship and to enjoy the sexual intimacy in that relationship. And as they enjoy that, their heart is to overflow with thankfulness and worship to God for that. So God gets more worship when we enjoy the pleasures He has given. But when we abstain from those pleasures, thinking it makes us more spiritual, He gets less worship. Do you see what's going on here? Even in Genesis, we saw that it was, God said it was not good for man to be alone. So what did God make him? A fishing pole? A monster truck? I mean, what did he make him? Did he give him a golden retriever? Absolutely not. He says it's not good for man to be alone, so I am going to make a woman. And what is the first thing that man does? Literally, he sings for joy when he sees Eve. He is so thrilled. God, at that point, officiates the first marriage ceremony. Then he tells them to go be fruitful and multiply. You know, be intimate, have children, fill the earth. In fact, he says, you know, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of children. Like, have more than one. Have lots of them. Make your suburban too small. You know, that's the idea of a blessed family. So, God says that marriage and God says that sexuality in marriage is good. In fact, He says that as you enjoy that God-given gift, it should cause great thankfulness and worship to come out of your heart, and God gets more praise and more honor and more glory because you are praising Him for His good gifts rather than thinking you're more spiritual because you deny them. I'm going to talk to those of you who are married. Maybe you've done the same thing 
I have. You go to bed at night, and you lay there next to your spouse, and as things slow down, you sort of just find yourself overwhelmed with thankfulness. Thank you for a, a wonderful spouse, somebody who's been faithful, somebody who's kind, who's my best friend. Thank you for creating us sexual beings so we can bring honor and pleasure to one another. And you reach over and you, you hold their hand. And you lay there in bed and you say, God, thank you for blessing me with this pleasure. It's such a good gift. God gets worship and glory that he would be denied if you followed this demonic teaching. Let's look at the next point. Demonic teaching emphasizes also abstinence from foods. In Ephesus and in today, what they were saying is the really spiritual people are the vegans. All, you know, all they do is eat wheat bread and they have salads with no dressing on them. It's the spiritually immature that have bacon and eggs for breakfast. That have sausages and hot dogs for lunch. And then a steak for dinner. But Paul says, eat your bacon. Because who cannot praise God for bacon? <laughs> Amen. God gets more worship because of bacon, I'll tell you. And you know, when you eat that steak at night, and you oh, this was so good, and you just lick your lips when you're done, pause and thank God for creating taste buds and for creating Angus beef cows. God, you are so good. You get more worship because I get to enjoy this food. But you vegans who eat salad without dressing, God gets less worship through you, I trust me. The more spiritual people are eating the meat, aren't they? Because they're giving God more worship. Now, you find this struggle actually going on in Scripture. Remember uh, the Apostle Peter? Peter grew up as a good Jewish boy. And in the Old Testament, you're a good Jewish boy. You follow the dietary laws, which restricted you from a bunch of different things that you would eat. In fact, you come along Jesus, he declares all foods clean in the Gospels. You get up to uh, in the book of Acts, and Peter is going along, and he's being a good Jewish boy, avoiding all the unclean foods. And in Acts chapter 10, God lets down a vision of a sheet, and it says on that sheet are all kinds of unclean animals. And God says to him, Peter, get up and kill and eat. And what's his response? Oh, oh, never, Lord. I've never touched anything unclean because I'm a really good spiritual guy. I would never touch those things. Well, what are some of the unclean animals? Pigs, bacon, pork chops, shrimp, lobster. And God says, Peter, all foods are clean. Get up, kill, and eat. Now, who does not enjoy a lobster dinner? Eat the lobster and give more glory and praise to God because of it. Amen? Yeah. But see, he, he thinks that he's more spiritual by denying himself of the pleasures that God has given him to enjoy. Now, I know a number of you are liking this message right now. 
I'm supposed to go out and enjoy the pleasures that God has given me. If I'm married, I'm supposed to enjoy my spouse. I'm supposed to enjoy the intimacy with my spouse. I'm supposed to go out and have a really good lunch today. I'm liking this, but I'm afraid I'm going to become a materialist, Pastor. And the Bible does say to avoid becoming a materialist. So where's the line? Here's the deal. A materialist needs sex and stuff and food to be happy because their happiness is found in the stuff. A Christian doesn't need those things to be happy, but if God does provide some good gifts, they produce worship to Him. You see that? When God provides you with good gifts, you don't have to deny yourself. Enjoy them and worship Him because of them. A materialist would never do that. In fact, if I was going to say one thing, that we as a church, and I mean to the evangelical church in general, is guilty of, it's that we don't enjoy God's good gifts enough. We don't savor them. We rush right past them. When it comes time for dinner, most of us woof down our food and don't take the time to enjoy the flavors and thank God for your wife's good cooking. At least I can say that. When it comes time for your marriage and your relationship, many times people rush right past one another rather than savoring one another, enjoying one another, loving one another deeply, and thanking God for the good gift of your spouse. When it comes time to the spring, when it comes time to hear the birds that are in the air as they're starting to come after the winter, and see the flowers come out of the ground, and feel the warmth of the air, what do we often do? Rush right past it to work. We should stop, savor it, enjoy it, and then in prayer and thankfulness, thank God for it. Thank you, God, for this beautiful spring. Thank you for bringing life in this dead world after the winter. Thank you for the beauty of the flowers. Thank you for the smell of the flowers. Thank you for all of these earthly pleasures that you want me to enjoy because they create more worship for you. Why do we pray before meals? Now, typically we pray before meals, say, thank you, God, for this food. Thank you, God, for providing this food. But our prayer to God before meals shouldn't just be thankful for His provisions, but it shouldn't it also be thankful for the joy and the pleasure we are about to experience? Thank you, God, for oregano. Thank you, God, for cilantro. Thank you for sugar and salt and lemons and tomatoes, and when you start putting a lot of these different things together, thank you for spaghetti. 
Thank you for taste buds that have given me the chance to enjoy this marvelous meal. God, thank you for these earthly pleasures. I want to savor them, enjoy them, and give you more worship because of them. The demons want me to abstain and eat grape nuts without milk, but I won't do it. I'll enjoy your good gifts. Now, if God wants us to enjoy earthly pleasures, why do people still embrace asceticism? Now, I need to explain. Some people didn't know what asceticism was in the first service. Asceticism means self-denial, self-deprivation, taking away stuff. Why do people often do that? And there's two reasons I want to give. Number one, we want to mask our inner wickedness by embracing outward piety. Mask our inner wickedness by embracing outward piety. If you are a person who finds yourself on the inside in a losing battle with sin, oftentimes what you will find is that person tries to find victories in an outward display of self-discipline and self-deprivation. I'll give you an example. Say you're somebody who struggles with self-hatred. Say you are somebody given to cutting what do you find in those situations? Often those people start to deny themselves of food. They go on really hardcore binge diets. I, you know, if I cannot win in the inner world, then I'm going to sort of provide myself high levels of self-discipline on the outer world. And the demons love that. But here's the problem. You can't fix on the outside what is really a problem on the inside. It's ultimately a spiritual issue. One of my favorite phrases is this. The problem is always sin. The answer is always Jesus. The problem is always sin. The answer is always Jesus. How do you beat self-hatred and cutting? It is not by extreme levels of self-discipline on the outside. It's by pursuing pleasure, and pursuing the greatest pleasure of all, and His name is Jesus Christ. What you do is when you're struggling with these things, you say, God, I am going to read my Bible and I'm going to enjoy Your Word. I'm going to underline and highlight Your Word. I'm going to take time to pray, and I'm going to take time to go to church. I'm going to be around my Christian friends. I'm going to develop Christian relationships and I'm going to get on my iPod and my iPhone, and I'm going to put some really good God-honoring Christian music on there, and I'm going to sing with my earbuds in, as long as I'm in the shower by myself so no one else hears me. But I'm going to sing with joy to God for what He has done. I am going to enjoy God and understand the greatness of what He's done for me, in Jesus, in greater depth, and enjoy His church. And what happens is, time goes on. And all of a sudden, you wake up two weeks later and you go, wait a minute, I haven't even thought about cutting recently. That's because as we pursue Jesus, He changes our inner nature. He changes our inner desires. The Bible says He literally makes us into a new creation on the inside. And the pleasure of Christ beat the issue of sin in a way that self-deprivation never could. So, 
Oftentimes, people want to mask their inner wickedness by embracing outward pirately, and the answer is to pursue Jesus. Pursue pleasure, not deny yourself of pleasure. Secondly, we embrace asceticism because we often don't understand the atonement. After we sin, oftentimes what happens is we are so broken, we are so angry and disgusted at ourselves for what we have done, not only do we get on our knees and we cry out to God asking for His forgiveness, but then we start to punish ourselves, don't we? Like you just find yourself so disgusted with what you've done, I'm not even going to eat dinner tonight. In fact, I'm not going to eat dinner tonight, I'm not going to eat breakfast tomorrow. You start to punish yourself. Maybe you're like some people that I've known that have been so angry with what they've done, they've taken their fist and they've pounded a brick wall and then broke their hand to punish themselves. Maybe you do it verbally instead of physically. You start yelling at yourself, what a jerk, and a variety of other four-letter words you call yourself to punish yourself, to help atone for your sin. See, that doesn't help one bit. Here's the truth, guys. Do you think that skipping a few meals and calling yourself a few four-letter words actually begins to pay for any of your sin? The only proper payment for your sin is your own death because it's that grievous against God. But Jesus Christ died in your place for your sin. Not just the sin of your past, but the sin of your present and even the sin of your future. A little self-denial and self-hatred can't even begin to make a dent in the sin of your life. But Jesus paid for all of the sin in our life. In addition, that when we start to produce these levels of self-discipline and self-hatred and asceticism in our life, it's sort of mocking the sufficiency of what Christ has done itself, as if what we could do could add to it or could help it. You see, that's why asceticism continues to make some traction in people's life, because we think that we have to do something to save ourselves when the reality is Jesus has done it all. And what we do is we pursue Him, the great pleasure of knowing Him. And the joy of Him is what beats sin. Last point, how do I apply this to my week? Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is going to be the best sermon application you have ever had in your life. Go home, and this week, make sure you savor and enjoy the God-given earthly pleasures that God has provided you. If you're married, savor your spouse. Enjoy your spouse, and let it produce greater worship in your heart. As you thank God for the wonderful mate that He has given you. Go out and have lunch. And don't like have one of those fast food lunches. Have a really nice lunch. Like go to Minerva's or something like that. And don't rush the meal. Enjoy the meal. And thank God for the 
meal. As the flowers come up, as the birds come out, as spring comes around the corner, stop and pause and thank God for the beauty of His creation that you get to enjoy. When you go out, get out of the house in the morning, before you get into that car to run to work, stop, turn, and look at your house. Thank God for your house, for a warm home that carried you through the winter, for family and children that are on the inside. They're an incredible blessing from God that you get to enjoy. Savor them and let them produce more worship to Him. Not only that, but let it produce prayer. Prayer. Before you eat a meal, thank God for the pleasure you're about to enjoy. After you experience something that is very grateful, that you're very grateful for, thank God for giving you that pleasure. Let the pleasures of this world make you a ceaseless worshiper to God, thanking Him for His good gifts. Let me just give you the full two final points here. Savor our God-given pleasures to its fullest. Let it lead you to greater worship of God for His goodness. And number two, offer prayers of thanksgiving to God for His goodness at meals and every time your heart overflows with gratitude. See, the demons have a very subtle trick out there. Trying to make you think that you're more spiritual if you deny yourself of God's earthly pleasures. When the reality is that's demonic. The really spiritual people enjoy the earthly pleasures that God provides and then worship Him because of it. This week, let that be you. Dear Jesus, thank You for giving so many good gifts. Marital gifts, for making us sexual, for giving us food, for giving us noses, for giving us words, for giving us family. I just ask this week that we would be people that richly savor and enjoy your gifts and give more worship and praise to you because of it. Now as we turn, Heavenly Father, to communion, we want to thank you for the greatest gift of all that you gave, which is your own Son who died on the cross in our place for our sin to completely pay for all of it. So there's no reason for uh, punishing ourselves because our sin, because you've paid for it all. Jesus, I ask that as the bread is passed and the cup is passed, and as we take these together, that we would savor, savor the greatness of this gift of your own Son. And we would worship you because of it and through it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.